Welcome to Precision Medicine Forum Podcast, chatting with patients, healthcare, industry and research professionals about creating personalized medicines for each and every one of us. Together, we head to the holy grail, mainstream precision medicine. Here's your host, Steve Coldicott. So welcome. Today we have our guest for this morning or this afternoon, wherever you're watching. Um, it's Peter Goodhand, the CEO of GA4GH. That's that's the abridged version, um, the Global Alliance for Genomic Health. Peter, welcome. Great to be with you. Uh, looking forward to the conversation. Give us a bit of background to start with about GA4GH. I know it's quite, probably quite a long story. Sure. Um, there's a, a, both an organisational piece or a big picture piece and then a little bit of a personal twist to it. Um, so it really stems from recognition about a decade ago, maybe a little bit longer. But back in 2012 is when the first real conversation started. Um, that large-scale genomics, particularly whole genomes, that had been the taken place, they were very expensive, they'd been done, we all know how how expensive the original human genome project was, but even then, the thousand genomes, ICGC, HapMap, big projects done in relatively few centers in um, the world's leading genomic countries. But there was a sense back in 2012 that this was changing. The cost of sequencing was dropping. There would be a sea shift in the way that genomics was being done. Genomic research will be done in many, many more places, many more countries, but increasingly genomics at scale would get into healthcare. And therefore, as this change would take place, a much greater need for interoperability much need a greater need for genomic standards and for communities working together, not just research silo or the cancer silo or the rare disease silo. And so it was from that recognition, the world is changing, the genomic ecosystem is going to get massive and distributed and diverse. Therefore, we've got to do something to bring these communities together. And that really was the genesis of lot of discussion in 2012 and through 2013 that led to the uh, white paper, the GFJ, the Global Alliance white paper in the middle of 2013. And by 2014, we were up and running. So that's why we did it. Yep. How we did it is really interesting because the leaders of those groups who'd done genomics at scale for all the way back to the Human Genome Project said, we need to lead this. So yes, we've, we've had this field almost to ourselves for a decade, but we need to be the leaders moving forward. So places like the Broad Institute, the Sanger Institute, OIC on the Ontario Institute for Cancer Research, where I work, uh, had all been leaders in the major genomic projects to date. And so those organizations originally stood up the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health, provided funding, provided staff, and said, we're not going to wait for a massive a non-governmental organization to be developed. We're not looking for anybody else to tell us, we'll get going, we will do it. Um, pretty much on a handshake and then a letter of intent from about 70 organizations that in the, in the beginning just said, we believe in this movement, this cause, this direction, and we'll use best efforts to work together. Yeah. So that's when I got involved. Um, my background isn't genomics or data science, data sharing. 
I am an industry medical device guy by background. Um, but a lot of my personal interests in this have been shaped by the fact that my first wife uh, uh, had, when she was very young or in her 30s, a rare and incurable cancer. And as she progressed through that disease, the two oncologists who were treating her, who were the world experts in that rare cancer, both died before she did. Oh, wow. And with them, a lot of the knowledge that was in their head or in their departments was lost. If you hadn't been to the Mayo Clinic, if you hadn't met them or heard them speak, we lost, the world lost that very specialized knowledge. So it brought home, I then, after my, uh, decided to move out of industry and move into uh, the not-for-profit world. And I ran a very large cancer charity in Canada and now met hundreds of thousands of patients with different, different stories, but the same hope that their experience wouldn't be repeated by their friends, by their kids, by their grandkids, and that we'd be learning from each other and that treatments would improve over time. And so that was my personal reason uh, for getting involved at the beginning of the Global Alliance and saying anything I can do uh, to help organize people to bring genomic knowledge from research into healthcare is it will be a good good way to spend uh, a decade of my life. There's <laughs> been some big changes. The field has changed, environment's changed, but the, the overarching reason of why I got involved why GA4JH got involved, still the same. It, this is important work and we, we all contribute in many ways. You were at the Ontario Institute then? No, uh, in the beginning, <laughs> so I was the president and CEO of the Canadian Cancer Society. When I decided that my core strength was bringing together public sector, private sector, philanthropic sector, and moving health research into either policy or products or practices, but moving it across that continuum. And I decided I was going to leave my role at the Canadian Cancer Society and find something new, but in that same field. And I spoke to Tom Hudson, who was the president at that time of the Ontario Institute for Cancer Research. And he basically said, if you want to do something, this is what we're doing in Ontario. This is what we're doing in Canada. But if you really want to do something that nobody's done before, you should go to the Broad Institute and talk to Eric Lander and David Altshuler because they have an idea to bring genomic research much closer to healthcare. And I did just 10 years ago this week, uh, went and had that conversation. And then by September, we were, we were starting the journey together. So you talk about silos and, and that's obviously a, a huge issue when you're talking about precision medicine, certainly historically, I think perhaps there's this, we're starting to see a, a bit of a sea change in how people are working together more and more. Uh, and GA4GH is very much about gathering data or, or, or making data available from both research and from healthcare. How are you doing that? What's, you know, what are the challenges um, in terms of standardization, harmonization? I think all of us used to think of there was a linear continuum from basic research through applied research and clinical research, implementation science, and all the way into routine healthcare. And it moved left to right. It was bench to bedside. Whereas increasingly now we're seeing the concept of a learning health system or that every episode of care 
could be part of quality improvement, could be part of knowledge enhancement. And so not just a linear movement of knowledge from research into healthcare. And that used to, I think the data I saw the last one was on average 17 years to make that journey, actually from a published research finding into uh, standard of care, 17 years. And not because people were doing more research, but because just the time it takes to disseminate, to change budgets, to change training. Right. So a lot of the energy at the moment is this idea of how, how can we use real world evidence? How we can have evidence informed decision making rather than evidence based? Where can we learn as we go? And of course, genomics is coming into facing healthcare when itself the, the amount of knowledge that's being generated, new knowledge around genomics is increasing every day. And so the, the big aspiration, the big dream is how can we learn not just from research projects, but from healthcare. And that means we've got to create interoperability. Turns out that the technical interoperability on the genomic data itself is actually not the biggest challenge. So it's, it's a challenge. We've got to make sure we've got the right standards, the right uh, annotations, the, the right ways of looking at human genomes. But the actual genomic data itself and the technical ways of sharing that data takes a lot of our time, a lot of our effort. But in fact, once we start to go across that continuum and around that continuum, many more of the challenges are about culture, about business practices, around ethics, around privacy legislation. And one of the big challenges is the global genomics community has got a 30 year history of collaborating on genomic research. There's almost no history of collaborating on health research across countries and even across cities. So that the hospitals and healthcare are not geared up naturally to share data. Right. There's some great examples of where things are changing. Health Data Research UK is a great example of how people are starting to look at health data itself and talk about how we can share it more broadly. But I think that the biggest challenge is, yes, technology is important and we work really, really hard cloud-based technology, federated systems, but we must never ever underestimate the non-technology elements because um, they can actually slow it down even more. Right, so, so you've talked about the cost of the first human genome. We all know what that was. Um, we all know where it's heading towards the muted 100, 100 bucks, basically. Do you think that in itself poses a challenge? in the sense that we, it, it, is, it will become so accessible to so many. One day, so, <laughs> um, they say the word too much data. In, in a sense. In the short term, because obviously stuff like, you know, tools like AI will make a massive difference. There is both a challenge and an opportunity. So there is going to be this massive amount of in, incremental data. It will be imaging data. It won't just be genomic data, but genomics will be a big piece of it. It will be more nuanced varied genomic data, more omic data, rather than just the, the actual straightforward genomic data, narrow definition. So let, let's think much more broadly about all of omics and all of imaging, massive amount of data. So then the question comes, how do we make sense of it? Clearly the best way to make sense of it is set it alongside the phenotypic data and the clinical data 
but that typically is structured in different ways, available in different systems. Um, not suggesting for a minute that we try and load all of that data into the electronic health record, but from the electronic health record, you need to be able to link to that data, not just link to a PDF of a report from four years ago, with a, which captures what we knew then. So I think as we build uh, learning health systems, we're going to have to really think about the amount of data, the variety of data, the typical big data questions, um, but also around issues of privacy and security. Um, and I do think that this will, we, we knew when we started that machine learning, machine readable, machine learning were there. I think over the last 10 years, we've just seen an explosion uh, towards AI. It won't solve all the problems, but it will be a big part of the solution, particularly on the health data itself. Diversity and inclusion obviously is a huge um a talking point in current times and specifically when we talk about genomic data and, and and how you know there's no point in just having one type of person's data how can we ensure that we're capturing data from you know all ethnicities for example when we know full well that actually medicine advancement is greater in for example, the US, you know, the the EU big five and so on and so forth. This is way more than a half hour topic. There's <laughs> a lot of people spending a very significant amount of time. I know things like the World Health Organization, Science Council is having these discussions. There are um, think tanks bringing these issues forward. NIH is having significant conversations about diversity and inclusion, particularly as it relates to genomic data. Um, but it is not exclusive to genomic data. So they, we're repeating the, the um, lack of diversity that we've seen in healthcare generally. I do think there's a difference between diversity and inclusion in countries like the US, the UK, Canada, Australia, disparate po uh, populations brought from all over the world over generations families who've been there, three generations, people who arrived today from all over the world with all, all uh, ancestry backgrounds brought together in one country, but not always on the same socioeconomic status, not always with the same access to healthcare or the same comfort level with becoming involved in health research. So in countries with very diverse populations, we're still not getting really good representation. There are many underrepresented groups in rich, high income, diverse countries. There's a separate, on a global scale, there's an e equally large issue, which is some countries and some ethnicities just not represented at all, or having the access to the research or the access to the, um, the healthcare systems that could benefit from precision medicine. And I think what those of us based in high resource settings, high income countries have got to be very cognizant of is that we don't do helicopter science, extractive science. We don't go there, take the day, take the samples, take the data, go home and do research. So it, it, it's about building strength, building capacity. Um, the work that's been done by NIH are welcome to build with H3Africa and things that follow from it is a great example of bringing science knowledge into a continent rather than pulling 
samples out of a continent. Sure. This societal value, this all of humanity approach is, is, is something we should all embrace and we should all be commit to. But the other side of this is, I think the point you were making, how can you have precision oncology? How can you have precision rare disease diagnosis if the genomic data that you're referencing is unrepresentative of the population? So there are some great initiatives going on in the world. Um, things like the International 100K Cohort Consortium, looking at all settings, just off a call with the Global Genomic Medicine Collaborative, very much focused on low middle income countries. And yesterday we were talking to the Human Pangenome Reference Consortium about their work on how to build more representative, more diverse looks at the reference genome on which all of our science, all of our medicine is currently based. So I think using advanced technologies, taking an inclusive approach, building better reference sets, and then finding mechanisms by which to reach deep into all parts of the world, or that's what we need to do. We've got to work both sides of this uh, in order to make a real difference. So within GA4GH, you've got, um, you have a number of work streams and you also have a number of driver projects. Could, can you give us a little bit of an idea of what they are? So think of it as uh, we often have a matrix. We, we show the, the work streams on this direction and the driver projects like this, but the difference is that the work streams kind of the workhorse of the GFGH. That's where we develop the standards, the protocols, the APIs, the stuff that is needed in the real world. But, and they are kind of owned and operated by the Global Alliance. We, we've gone now, uh, had great support in the last few years from national level funders in the US, the UK and Canada. So it's no longer those original host institutes going it alone. Right. So we've been able to staff up workstream managers and a small tech development team and a chief standards officer. And that group is the, is the workhorse of GFGH. About three quarters of what we do is technical and about one quarter is regulatory and ethics. So eight workstreams, six of them have got a technical dimension, regulatory and ethics is foundational and data security is foundational. Typically a workstream manager handles two or three of those workstreams. There will be two co-chairs who are volunteers unpaid and they're experts in their field, but they're also great organizing people and bringing uh, strategic direction to that particular aspect of our work. Below them, there will be dozens or in one case, maybe a hundred volunteers drawn from projects all around the world who are giving their time, their energy, their expertise to these work streams to develop the products uh, and a full range of products. But none of that includes data. We're not doing research. We don't have any real data. We ourselves don't have any real use cases. So what we've done in the last four or five, four or five years is establish a cohort of driver projects. There are 24 real world driver projects that do have data, do have research, have got uh, clear requirements. And so the, the connection is the, they help us shape what is needed. A driver project say, for my real world application, either today or in the future, 
I need this and this. I need this level of interoperability. If it's a high priority for them, they embed some people in our work streams to work with us to make sure it gets them finished. When it is, when it's reached the end of a standard, it goes through a rigorous approval process right. by a steering committee that consists of the leaders of our work streams, champions of our driver projects, and together they say this is fit for purpose. It goes through several internal checks and balances first. Once it's approved as a standard, when we look for implementations, we have a, the 24 driver projects and a larger group, the Genomics in Health Implementation Forum, and they're focused on putting these standards, these protocols into practice, and then give us the feedback so that we can get the next version even better, even stronger. Um, when we get, when we were able to, uh, with external funding, secure this tech team and a chief standards officer, it means we can do a much tighter job, a much more rigorous job of ensuring that the standards can work together, that they're easier to implement, they're well documented, there's test beds, there's reference implementations. And that was difficult to do on a pure volunteer basis. So the additional funding from our uh, national or funders and the creation of technical resources means we can make these standards, protocols, APIs more uh, applicable, more accessible to a broader community. So work streams do the work, develop the standards, driver projects are the hard real life test cases and uh, help us to develop 200 plus other genomic data sharing initiatives around the world um, that many of them will access it not directly they won't even know they're consuming a gfj standard because it will have been built into a pipeline or a platform whether it's an academic build or a commercial build it will have a gfj standard in it the end user may never know that it has a GAPJ standard, but it will be there. With all the standards and the work that you're doing, are you having to, is part of your work to lobby governments as well about how you can, you know, about data sharing? Because obviously, you know, the, you talk about GDPR specifically, but, it's, you know, so many, so much around secu and data security, isn't there? It's an interesting balance because, and I think when uh, Bartha Knoppers and others first gave her as our original regulatory and ethics framework, it was a bit different from most of the regulatory and ethics work that had come before it. And then it, it was based on two fundamental human rights. Um, the right of citizens of the world to benefit from science and the world, the rights of science and, uh, and scientists and others to benefit from recognition for their work. But the other key principle to it was this balancing risk and benefit and not just focusing on protection from harm because you can create harm by not sharing data. So one way to make sure that none of this gets, there's never a privacy breach, there's never a problem, is just lock up all the data in really tight, secure things. We would be doing enormous harm to society, to humans, if we didn't share the important parts of this data. But we have to share it in a responsible way. We have to use best practices in data security. We have to inform people of their rights when their data is being shared. And so a lot of the advocacy work we do is not directly from GA4GH, but virtually all of our leaders have leadership roles in their own country, in their own institutions, 
and collectively we add our voice to probably half a dozen government level advocacy efforts in a year, um, but typically not going alone as GA4GH, but creating that sense of a broader community. We can bring an aspect of the expertise around our work, um, but we, if we're talking about things like GDPR, we would talk about it alongside European-based organizations on the ground working in Europe, rather than think a global organization uh, knows all the answers and every government should listen to us. We, we recognize that you need to be, to be truly effective globally. We've got to have deep linkages and a great deal of respect for local uh, culture, local politics, local sovereignty, and walk alongside people to make change, not, not think we can do it from just the Global Alliance perspective. What we do on this podcast is at the end, we ask our guests to take part in our challenge. Um, we call it Forward in Five Minutes. I'm hoping that you can see this, Peter. I've got a little timer for you. Can you see that? Yeah, uh, yep. So I'm going to ask you in five minutes, and you can, you can split it up into a minute of each, is ideal, um, to give us your view on how these the following stakeholders can really help push forward and drive forward precision medicine at scale. So the, the five um, stakeholders we're talking about are research, patients, industry, uh, governments and payers, and healthcare. Okay. okay. So I'm going to click start. Should we start with, why don't we start with healthcare? Go. It's almost too big a group. You've got to, right, healthcare is massive and it's diverse across from your basic GP interaction all the way through to the, the best academic hospitals in the world. But I think one thing that healthcare can do, and this goes all the way back to med schools, is be better informed about genomics, um, be more comfortable with the whole topic of genomics and the concept of precision. I don't think any, any clinician in the world would ever want to have imprecise medicine, but the idea, the concept of precision medicine, seeing the patient as an individual, and becoming uh, very cognizant of the changes in genomics knowledge is one thing clinicians can do particularly. Healthcare systems, I would just encourage them to really embrace this idea of a learning health system and think how the data that they hold, which is very, very precious and important, can be responsibly shared across institutions with researchers for the benefit of all yeah well you've got seven seconds to make up on something else you're gonna to have to be quicker on something else <laughs> okay so the next next category is uh let's go with research research is at many many different levels and i think what we've seen in the formation of gfgh is how people in the largest most experienced genomic research centers can benefit a much broader group but if we're really going to get this sense of global knowledge, then we've got to make sure that genomic research is being done in many settings, in many countries, that knowledge is being built locally and that the benefits of that knowledge are being shared globally. When it comes to sensitive data and data that needs to stay in place, either because it's too big or it's private, we should be using federated approaches and researchers need to embrace the idea of leave the data where it is and go and visit the data. Where it's knowledge and it can be aggregated, we need to put that in the most accessible form possible. For instance, the BRCA exchange. Pretty good. 
Where are we? I need to turn it around. Yes, made up some time. Excellent. Okay, let's go with industry. What can they do to push forward precision medicine? Many different players in industry. From a GFGH perspective, one of the things we've done from the very beginning is say industry has got to be in there as equal partners. When we have a plenary meeting or a connect meeting, we are not looking for uh, academics, researchers, healthcare inside the conference hall and industry in the exhibit booth. So what industry is doing right now to help this movement go forward is putting their scientists, their developers, their clinical trial specialists into collaborations such as GA4GH so that we can build these things together. From a genomics point of view, it's, there is significant contribution to this knowledge generation from the sequencing companies, from the analysis companies, from the cloud data storage companies, and then of course the application into things like diagnostics and pharmaceutical. So when I think about what industry can do, is perhaps recognize that they can gain more by expanding the, they and society can gain more by collaborating in a pre-competitive sense and downstream find their competitive piece, but in the knowledge generation work as much as possible together. <laughs> that was obviously a big category. <laughs> so the next one we're going to go for is patients or patient advocacy groups. I think the best thing that patients can do is difficult to do anything as an individual patient. So to the extent they can form patient groups, whether it's local groups or larger groups, particularly for things like rare disease, they might have to be a global group, but patients get involved, understand uh, the nature of their condition, their disease, advocate for change, make all of us do what we say we want to do, which is put this, the patient at the center of things. That is a, we've got to make sure we're not paying lip service to that. We're not just saying it as a nice to do and the people to hold us accountable, hold our feet to the fire and bring their own lived experience to this, our patients themselves. Much better if they can do that as a collective and a patient advocacy group. But I recognize that for some, it's a very specialized need and what they need from precision medicine is different from another group. So I would say get organized, get vocal, hold us accountable, but be willing to be part of the solution. And that I see that time and time again. Patients want their data shared. They want to be part of the solution. Final group, governments and payers. And you've got, well, a little bit more than 21 seconds. <laughs> go. Well, that's probably good because I could get myself in trouble. This is the one where I could really get myself in trouble. Um, <laughs> For those who can support the, this world-class research, the, the use of genomics, the use of precision in your environment, promote it, recognize its value. For payers, please be as flexible and as understanding, use your health technology assessment, use your economic outcomes, but recognize that technology is innovative, it can be disruptive, it will change the way things are done and just be open to that sense of change for the benefit of all society. Very good. Not easy with the time lag. No, no. Listen, it's been a pleasure. Uh, a couple of things that I'd, I'd, I'd come back to you on there or, or like to mention. Um, you spoke about industry working, um, you know, perhaps in a pre-competitive pre level. Um, and I think we've spoken about this, Peter, before when I said um, 
that we're working, we've just started uh, in partnership with the Precision Cancer Consortium. Um, if anyone wants to check out the, the website, it's precisioncancerconsortium.com. Uh, it's a consortium of recently started um, a group of pharmaceutical manufacturers. Uh, at, the, at the moment, it's GSK, Bayer, Roche and Novartis. But, you know, they're, they're, the idea really is to educate clinicians that are outside of the you know the usual sort of large cancer centers and university medical centers so we can get next-gen sequencing out to you know to, to other sort of community settings and what have you um it's just exciting work and, and of course the other thing is you're coming to new jersey to our precision oncology i'm farm. looking forward to it having lived in new jersey for a couple of years it'd be interesting to return there thank you so much for joining us it's been really good interesting and good fun enjoyed it that was precision medicine forum podcast visit precisionmedicineforum.com to get all the show resources and find out about our upcoming episodes and events and please subscribe or follow on your podcast app so you never miss an episode